morning, Glory, and evening, Grace, America. It's the last radio hour of the week, and that means I am joined by Dr. Larry Arner, one of his colleagues last week. Dr. Paul Ray uh, thrilled the audience. In fact, they clamored for his return, but I'm making you listen to Dr. Larry Arn again because the other folks were clamoring for his return. I got, I got static because I didn't do Lincoln last week, and then I got static because I'm not doing Paul Ray this week. I'm betwixt and between, as they would say, Dr. Arn. There's no pleasing these people, huh? There is no pleasing these people, and so uh, we're going to finish with Lincoln, whether they want it or not. Uh, I want to ask you, though, one quick uh, question from earlier this week. On Wednesday, Chris Eliza interviewed the senior political advisor to Dr. Ben Carson, a good and gentle man and a very learned man. He's, he's leading a lot of polls in a lot of places. But Dr. Carson's political advisor said it should not be held against Ben Carson that he hasn't held elected office. After all, Abraham Lincoln only served a single term in the House of Representatives. And I thought I'd present that to you for both distinguishing and and perhaps applause. How should that very unique career of Lincoln's figure into our assessment of people for the modern presidency? Well, uh, I'll just say two things. One is, it's not quite accurate. You know, Lincoln was a member of the state legislature, and he was his party's nominee for the Senate of the United States when he did very well in the campaign. So he had those experiences. Uh, and the, and the second thing I'd say is, of course, Ben, Qual- ben Carson is qualified. He's a citizen born in the United States, and he's above the age that's required. He can run. Uh, and I would answer that it's very uncommon for anybody with no previous political office to hold the job. And that's proved by the fact that the others are all... Uh, Herbert Hoover and William Howard Taft, who were famous cabinet members and senior members of administration who led large national projects, and famous generals. And so as these things go, you know, just from what's happened, then nobody who's just been a private citizen has ever been elected to the presidency of the United States. And, and, uh, you know, and, and he's right. Lincoln is one of the less experienced of them. And, uh, you know, God bless his campaign and him. He's a great guy, and I'm not saying I'm endorsing him, but he's awesome, right? And I wish him well. But uh, that, that fact that, generally speaking, holding high public office is the prerequisite, has been in practice the prerequisite, is a fact. And one of the reasons that it's a good fact is that people confront unusual circumstances which only the exercise of executive decision-making can provide them for. One of them is the the care and feeding of generals and admirals. And Lincoln learned as he went along, did he not? And he got better at it as he went along. And Lincoln had some military service. And uh, Lincoln, you know, I mean, in, in another way, of course, you can't explain real greatness by experience any better than you can explain it by, you know, who your dad was or your mom was. And uh, because that's just given to a few people. And Ben Carson is an exceptional human being, you know. I mean, what a wonderful guy. I had dinner with him one night. I actually said to him, there is this thing that, you know, not people like you've not been elected president, but gosh, aren't you a wonderful guy? And he's... uh, I, you know, I can attest from, you know, it's one conversation, but sitting between him and his wife, I was talking to both of them. He's a serious, humble, restrained man. And he's got the character. You know, he's, got a, he's a fantastic character. 
but but you know the american people for the top executive job in the land have not typically picked people without experience and i have a second question for you that that came out of my personal experience this week i'm in colorado and i chose last sunday to climb my first 14er with the fetching mrs hewitt we climbed because it was named mount sherman uh, 14,036 feet, and uh, the great son of Ohio, William Tecumseh Sherman, he chose not to run. And I've been trying to investigate since then why he didn't, because surely he would have been elected. Why do some people turn it down, Larry, when they could easily become the president? Well, uh, you know, uh, it's a miracle that all the eels agree to be skinned. <laughs> 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 Why not turn it down? You know, uh, Sherman is an amazing man, of course, and, you know, was a tremendous military commander. And Victor Hansen testifies that he figured out things about war that only the very great figure yes. out and demonstrated his, his knowledge of them. And uh, for one thing, he knew how to win a war in a way that made you stronger as you went, which was one of the great criteria of Winston Churchill. He, his, his troops, Hansen describes this in one of his very best books, The Soul of Battle, uh, his troops in the, mar- in the Victory March on Washington, they were strong and healthy, and they paraded all the stuff they captured. And, you know, the, the main southern forces in proximity to him did not attack his chief army. And they had tried that all the way down south toward Atlanta, which, which was taken in September of 1864, and then he just turned left from Atlanta and cut himself off from all supplies and marched across several hundred miles to come into Savannah from the south, and then eventually Charleston, and take them. And that was just an amazing feat. General Beauregard said later, wrote later, and General Beauregard was the commander of the of the troops that fired on Fort Sumter in in 1861, he said, uh, you might find an example of this kind of march in the annals of Julius Caesar, but I can't think of any other place. A son of Ohio, I simply point that out. (laughs) Now I have to ask you, he was being commanded, though, by Lincoln, and Lincoln had this uneasy relationship with his generals. What did the generals think of the Emancipation Proclamation, Larry Arn? Did they welcome that as a strategic move on January 1, 1863? Well, there were there were various things that had happened. The uh, the uh, moves toward emancipation. There had been several of them, and one of them led by a general. And I'll actually read you something if you want me to. Um, uh, general David Hunter declared the slaves of Georgia free, and Lincoln rescinded it. And at the same time, he had his own emancipation idea at that time. And uh, and that's two years earlier than the year and a half earlier than the Emancipation Proclamation, and his ideas then, as all times before, had been gradual and compensated emancipation, and he wrote to the South in rescinding that order and reserving to himself the uh, I'll read you a phrase. I reserve to myself whether it shall become a necessity indispensable to the maintenance of the government to examine this power, right? So he's laying out a ground on which he might do it, which was the eventual ground of the Emancipation Proclamation, and that is 
maybe he raises the implication he could do it as a war measure, but only he. And then from there, he points to the Emancipation Bill that had been in the Congress. And I'll read you what he wrote about it. He said, this proposal makes common cause for a common object, casting no reproaches on any. It acts not the Pharisee. The change it contemplates would come as gently as the dews of heaven, not rending or wrecking anything. Will you not embrace it? So his idea, he, his idea had been to do it gradually and pay the people who had owned the slaves. And by the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, September 1862, he, he you know, in the end, that emancipation, which was the Emancipation Proclamation, freed the slaves of the states in rebellion, and which were in rebellion was uh, defined by whether a majority of the citizens had elected representation to the Congress of the United States. And then the four states that were not in rebellion, that were part of the Union, uh, and they were, what, Missouri, Delaware, Kentucky, Kentucky. And, and somewhere. Um, Maryland. The, yep. Their slaves were not freed. And, uh, but the ones that were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation were, were freed on the day the law went to in effect, it was the the order was promulgated in September 1862, and it went into effect on January 1, 1863, three months later. And they there was no compensation, and they were immediately free. Uh, but of course, their actual freedom came as the land was liberated. There were, I read, 30 or 40 thousand slaves in parts of the South that had already been taken by the Union armies that were immediately freed. Did, did so, he run into static from the border states when he did this, where the slaves remained slaves? You know, he was worried about that, but relatively little. And, uh, you know, by then, see, it's kind of like in, uh, in uh, do we have to go? It was, yeah, we so I'll answer that question when we come back. Don't go anywhere, America. The Emancipation Proclamation and the Gettysburg Address here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. And I want to remind all of you on Monday, on Labor Day, we are having a rebroadcast of the special three-hour history of the American labor movement that I did with Dr. Arn and his colleagues last year. It was so widely and well-received. It's over at HughForHillsdale.com, but if you're driving anywhere on Monday, you're going to want to listen to that special three-hour broadcast. Dr. Larry Arn and I are talking about Lincoln today. And his, his proclamation of emancipation of the slaves in September of 1862, effective on January 1, 1863. And what happened in the four states, uh, Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and I can't remember the fourth either, uh, wherein the slaves were not emancipated and whether or not he got pushback from his, his Congress at his back. He did some, but not as much as he feared. And uh, the reason for that well, it was uh, things had changed. I was about to make a comparison Throughout the spring and summer of 1940, 
there were lots of pressures on the British government to make a peace with Germany, and there were back-channel talks with Germany, and there was lots of politicking going on. And come about September or so, after the Blitz had started and the Battle of Britain had had reached its maturity, they the Germans stopped concentrating on trying to destroy the British Air Force and started bombing the British cities, which was probably a military mistake. But uh, people sort of looked up and said, that's enough, right? Well, this war was toward the end of its second year now, and that meant the sides were chosen up. And there were several emancipation uh, moves made in the Congress, and, and it was becoming plain that that was going to be the result of the war. And uh, Lincoln's plans were gradual. He was going to put, put out bonds, and the, the number and value of the bonds would simply be a multiple of the number of slaves they found. And they would gradually buy them out. And the, the, one of the bills said, by not later than the year 1900. So a whole generation might go over the course of this emancipation. But then, you know, it's, it's, 18, it's, it's the end of 1861, and it's a big war now. And nobody could know it then, but it was about to get a lot bigger. And, uh, and so they knew what side they were on, and they knew what the implications of being on that side were. So there was less trouble than Lincoln thought. So after the Emancipation Proclamation, which is, it's interesting to read, it's five pages, it's not that long. It is couched as an exertion, assertion of commander-in-chief authority in wartime, which is interesting because that stands as a high-water mark for what a commander-in-chief can do in wartime, doesn't it? It does. And uh, one thing that I'll... I'll mention is that Alan Geltzo, G-U-E-L-Z-O, I mentioned before, has written a good book about about this. All his books are good. But um, but uh, there's a point I want to make that uh, I, I think it's important to emphasize. Uh, we're going to read next, one, one today and I guess one next week, two of Lincoln's most beautiful speeches. They're just awesome productions. And they're beautiful and poised from the first word to the last, the Emancipation Proclamation is a legalistic document. It's only pretty right at the end, and and I think that's on purpose. Uh, I I don't think it's any failure of Lincoln's poetry. I think he had that at his command when he needed it. He agonized over this thing, and he agonized in part about whether it was legal, and he, as you say, makes the argument it's legal as a war measure. But then he went on to confine it just to that. And it only gets pretty in the very end. And, it, and you know, there's a legal definition of it of what constitutes a rebellion. Uh, so it's not, it's a, a very limited statement. And uh, that's because I think uh, Lincoln thought that the Constitution should reign. And so under the powers of the Constitution, he thought he had the right to free these people in order to win the war. Tell us how it got pretty, because after the break, I'm going to have you read the Gettysburg Address, which I believe can be done in, in five and a half minutes. It doesn't take that long. Uh, what, what is the pretty part of the Emancipation Proclamation? Uh, well, you know, it, it, the, the, uh, 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 so the last four paragraphs, uh, the, the fourth last paragraph 
define some places where it's going to operate and what the blacks can do, the freed slaves can do, if they join the Union Army. Above that, he's encouraged them in cases where it's offered to take, um, not to rebel and not to work violence on people, and also to take paid labor if it's offered. Uh, and then he says, because he, he, he doesn't think it's right to release riot across the whole South. Right. But then he gets to the second to last paragraph, and he says, And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment. That is to say, I'm asking you to, to, to view this with consideration. The considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. So that's the only place where it ap- approaches the heights of rhetoric that Lincoln commonly employed. But of course, that echoes Jefferson, uh, one uh, obligation in the Declaration to appeal to mankind, right? That's you've right. got to you've got to make an argument to mankind if you're going to do something big and bold. Yeah, and that that phrase, considerate, right? It's not. It's different than saying considered. He's not saying, "I'm I'm urging you to think about this." I'm urging you to think about this with consideration. That is to say, charitably, seeing it for the generous thing it is. And uh, and so I think it's a. It was a very powerful move. It had big diplomatic implications because it was obvious from the point of view of simple national interest that the British ought to. Uh, support the South. Um, there, there are many reasons for that. Uh, one of them is the United States has become a great rival to Great Britain. We've had two wars with them by this point, and we're growing and we're becoming a huge thing. <laughs> the second is the, the Union is enforcing a very effective blockade, and that affects the British, and they have a long history of busting up such blockades unless they put them in place themselves. And the third thing is the trade relations with, uh, with Great Britain very much made it close to the South because they were producers of raw materials, and, and England was a great manufacturing nation. And one of the errors that I personally think is in Hamilton's politics and in Abraham Lincoln's politics is that early in America and, and, and uh you know, very consistently followed in early America by strong and, in my opinion, magnificent forces, was a tariff to build up manufacturing in the North. And that's, you know, cited as one of the causes of the Civil War and in some background way it was, although you won't find that mentioned in the secession messages of the states. Not often, no, uh, not at all. And Not at all. And, uh, and so, so, so they had big reasons to go with the South, and they didn't. And one of the reasons was the powerful moral reason, are we going to endorse human slavery? And they were not willing to do that. And this made that point clearer. When we come back, the clearest exposition of what Lincoln believed, the Declaration of Independence, Dr. Arn will read it, and then we'll discuss it. Don't go anywhere. On this eve of Labor Day weekend show, it is the Hillsdale Dialogue. Hugh for Hillsdale.com for all of them. Hillsdale.edu for all the college's offers and more. Stay tuned.
minutes after the hour, America, as you begin your Labor Day weekend, no better way than to be reminded of perhaps the greatest bit of American rhetoric competing with the Declaration of Independence delivered at a cemetery in Pennsylvania to commemorate the Gettysburg Battle of July of 1863, a few months later by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Dr. Larry Aaron of Hillsdale College, why don't you read it for us? Okay. So it, uh, it's very short. Uh, actually, before I do that, I want to invite people to an act of tourism. Uh, you should go to Washington, D.C., and some evening, not long after dark, but after dark, you should walk uh, from the Capitol uh, up the National Mall, uh, past the World War II Memorial and the Vietnam Memorial, neither of which is my favorite, but they're beautiful and solemn, and especially at night. And then you should stop in the Lincoln Memorial, and you should stand and read the thing, the, the, and look at that grand statue, and also read the Gettysburg Address on the left and the Second Inaugural on the right, and take some time with it. It's usually quiet up there at night. And then from there, you should walk to the Iwo Jima Memorial. Because, you know, to have these two beautiful speeches that can be inscribed on a wall in marble and have them be entirely there is a very remarkable thing, that he wrote yeah. them in that way. So this one begins with two paragraphs of narrative that are simple and direct and pretty in their way. Four score and seven years ago, that means if you just take 87 years from 1863, you get 1776, which is Lincoln's claim that the nation began with the Declaration of Independence. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. A definite statement of what the nation means. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that their nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. That's the first section. The second uh, uh, section begins with the word but. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far beyond our poor power to add or to detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, and pause there and think that I am reading these words all these years <laughs> later, right? 152 years later, yep. But it can never forget what they did here. Now, the final section is an appeal to us. It is for us, the living, rather, to be here dedicated to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we shall take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. 
Now, that is a magnificent and short statement, invoking God at the end and saying a new birth of freedom. Now, what does that mean? We have a minute to the break, minute and a half, and we'll come back and talk about what is that higher purpose, a new birth of freedom? His, it, 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 uh, he thinks that, free, you know, we know from reading the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he thinks that freedom has been sullied not only by slavery, but by the by the the view growing with increasing force that slavery is good, and so he's calling upon us to start over. It's like a revolution, except it's a revolution entirely in the name of the original principles, and and to complete something not achieved fully yet. Just think what it means of the people, by the people, and for the people. It means that we are the government, we manage it, we perform, and you know, in in America until the bureaucratic age, most government was done by private citizens acting under color of authority and without compensation. Of the people, by the people, and for the people. In other words, we, each of us, must hold these principles in our heart and execute them for ourselves. And that seems to me uh, a beautiful restatement of the Declaration of Independence in terms that are in some ways more radical even than the Declaration. Absolutely. We come back from break. We'll continue the conversation about the Gettysburg Address and what it means actually in 2015 and 16. Stay tuned, America. Four minutes after the Our America, Hugh Hill with Dr. Larry R. And all of the Hillsdale Dialogues in which I am engaged here in the last radio hour of the week are available at hughforhillsdale.com. I remind you on Monday, a special Hillsdale Day, the three hours that we did last year for the first time in the history of the American labor movement and why it did not descend into Bolshevism and why the progressives uh, and the labor union movement actually did some good things in preventing it from doing so. Uh, Don't miss that three hours on Monday with Dr. Arnold and his colleagues and me from last year, a replay. But we are talking about the Gettysburg Address, and I think it's interesting after three years we're finally getting to it uh, because in many respects it is the triumph of the West when he says this. So, Dr. Arnold, what would be the message of the Gettysburg Address to the people debating today and in two weeks when I'm participating in it about how to approach the people and the, the question before them in 2016? Well, you know, it's, it, 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 if the American people are still a people, and they are, then they will respond to the language that this is our government, and we are the government. And, you know, we're divided into camps now, right? The governing and the governed. And that's a tragedy, and it's not good for us, because government of the people, by the people, and for the people that's government that we all participate in and are all ennobled by. And so, that, you know, that, right? And then, and so, and one more thing. Uh, Lincoln, we, we learned this in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, too. They are very long, and they are, you know, more or less extemporaneous. That is, say, they didn't write the whole thing out before they said it. But Lincoln could achieve something that Douglas could not, to my ear and eye. And that is, he could put 
beautiful passages in the middle of those things. And those were the things he'd been speaking about all his life. And they flowed naturally from his, his mental weather, from the way he conceived everything. And these short, beautiful speeches, the Gettysburg Address and the, and the Second Inaugural, the, the, that is that phenomenon purely put on an occasion that didn't man, demand anything except that purity. He even begins, we'll see next week, the Second Inaugural, by stating that that's all he needs to do today, whereas in previous occasions he needed to do more. Yeah, I, I've often said I think the Second Inaugural is almost scripture-like in that it's the greatest speech he gave. Some people say the Gettysburg Address is. I don't know what your opinion is on that. But they were both short, and they both surprised their audience, did they not? Well, the Gettysburg Address is a hoot because um, there's a man named Edward Everett, and he was a great abolitionist and a governor of Massachusetts and a senator of Massachusetts, and he has a connection with Hillsdale College. He spoke here, and he left us a lot of books from his library. Oh. And, and uh, you know, we were a great abolitionist place back in the day. Christian abolitionist, freedom-loving, learned people. That's what the college was founded to be. We try to be that today. So... Everett gave this whackin' big, long speech. And it's, you know, it's good, and it's long. And he, you know, and they'd always stand there listening to him for a long time. And then they listened to Lincoln for three or four minutes. And then, uh, and then uh, Everett wrote Lincoln a letter after it. And it's a long letter, and it's much about how sorry he is he spoke so long when Lincoln spoke so short and beautifully. <laughs> and, then, and then Lincoln wrote him back a short, pretty letter forgiving him. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it would be awfully hard to proceed or follow Lincoln. And and I have this image of uh, Foghorn Leghorn with Ed, uh, Senator Everett, right? And and a big voice and, and Lincoln bobbing up and his hat off and people not even knowing it's begun. And then it's done. Yeah. And yet it, it echoes through the ages. And see, it's the thing about Lincoln. You asked me the other day what in an email. Hugh and I email each other people. And uh, and uh, you asked me, who would I pick for what job, Washington, Lincoln, or Churchill, and I wrote back something. But one of the things I wrote back was, aren't they so different? Because, you know, it was hard to underestimate Winston Churchill. He was quick, and he was moving, you know, and he was very forceful. People were always underestimating Abraham Lincoln. At the start, Douglas thought, I'm going to destroy him. And by the end, it was Douglas who was suffering. And, <laughs> and the same thing here, you know. Lincoln commented to somebody after it was over, he thought the speech had fallen rather flat. Put that together with, you know, because there wasn't any time. He was done. Yep. Put that together with his world will little note nor long remember what remember. we here. I think he knew better than that. And, uh, yeah. You know, it, uh, it, it's remarkable. I got to tell people the email I sent Dr. Iron was had he been offered a chance at the height of their powers to dine one time with either Washington, Lincoln or Churchill, who would he pick? And in classic uh, Straussian fashion, he responded he could not answer and then and then uh, talked to him why he would want to have dinner with each of them. <laughs> <laughs> why not? You know, you, like with Lincoln, it would, I, like it's hard to think like uh, George Washington. His great gift was not speaking. And on the other hand, he was, he was well known for being excellent dinner conversationalist and good at small talk. 
Lincoln and uh, he and Churchill were very funny, huge funny, you know. And to have dinner with Churchill was to listen to an oration. To have dinner with Lincoln, you'd talk most for a long time, and then later, wow, he'd come up with some stuff. And it would like him. It would be very closely reasoned and pithily put, and it would swell up to heaven. But I got the, the food would definitely be best at the Churchill table, right? Oh yeah. Well, he was. Yeah, <laughs> Churchill was. You know, I mean, you, you know, get a glass of wine at Abe Lincoln. He wouldn't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> I read. I read your response to my uh, my undergraduates, and they all laughed because it one is tall and. And underestimated. One is short and fat and funny all the time, and one doesn't drink. And Washington doesn't smile, although uh, you've just said he does to a certain extent when he unwinds a bit. He was known to swear a bit, I believe, General Washington. Uh, and 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 only very effectively. He was Dr. Larry Arn- trained, right? But then yeah. he would. When he would get going, like he, you know, he cursed the whole army around in the other direction at the Battle of Monmouth. And he got after you, you went, wow. (laughs) You get after a great Labor Day weekend up at Hillsdale College. And uh, America, don't miss our Monday special. You really do not want to miss why our country did not go Bolshevik when a lot of the world did during the depths of the Depression. It's all in the history of the labor movement. An extended Hillsdale dialogue on Monday. Dr. Arndt, thank you. I'll be back. America, to wrap up this week's Hugh Hewitt Show. Stay tuned.